What a great song to lead into a message. I believe, I believe, I believe in Jesus. He is my hope. He is my Lord. He is my God. Wow. Well, the reason that this uh, Jesus, the Son of God, came from heaven, there's a lot of ways that we can answer that question as to why He came, but one of the ways that it's stated in the New Testament, I love this, in 1 John 3.8, it simply says that the reason that the Son of God came, here's the reason He came, it was to destroy the works of the devil. Another verse gives further insight. I was just thinking of it this this morning as we were singing uh, a verse in John 11 that speaks about a prophecy that was spoken that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, not only for the Jews, but that He would die for all of the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. And so those two verses are kind of saying the same thing, that the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil, and the result of that would be that all of God's scattered children all throughout the nations, they would be brought together as one. This is why Jesus came. And this is why we go. And as we go, and we talked some about this last night, as we go, we need to understand that most of the world where we are going, we're not welcome when we get there. How many of you know, in most of the world, in most of the unreached places, those regions of the world where Jesus is not known, they are not rolling out for us the red carpet of welcome. Anybody do any traveling? Now, if you go and you have a message about Jesus that is Jesus plus something, you're going to be okay. But if you go with the exclusive message of the Gospel, that message of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, enthroned in heaven, given all authority in heaven and on earth, and this Jesus who's coming back to rule and to reign, and He is the only way to the Father. Muhammad's not going to help you. Buddha is not going to help you. Islam is not going to help you. You go with this message that Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and the only way to God. That message, you preach it, and the world is going to want your head on a plate. That's the truth. But that's the message that we carry. And as we carry it into these places, they don't want us, and they should not want us. Because our message of Christ is going to topple all of their gods. It's going to turn their worlds upside down and inside out. All of their idolatries and witchcrafts and sorceries and all of these manufactured 
false ways of trying to get to God, all of that is just going to be blown away and shattered by the truth of the gospel. The world hated Jesus when He came, and the world will hate you when you go in His name. So be ready for it. Jesus told us up front what to expect, and I'm reminding you today of what He said. And I love very much the way that Jesus put it Himself to the Apostle Paul. And you remember the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul the terrorist. He was um, on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. Literally, he killed Christians. He imprisoned Christians. And he was on a mission on his way to Damascus to carry out that mission against Christians. If he was alive today and lived uh, in Mexico, he would be a part of the drug cartel, probably. But he was, no doubt, a terrorist. But Jesus stopped him in his tracks on that road, blinded him with a bright light, saved him, and then gave him these words. Jesus said to, to Saul, now Paul, the Christian, the used-to-be terrorist who now is not uh, imprisoning and killing Christians, but he's going and he's making new ones by the proclamation of this Jesus who, who sought him out on the road. And Jesus says to him now, Paul, I'm calling you Paul, I am sending you, and isn't it great, I just paused there, I'm sending you, isn't it great missionaries, those of you that have already gone, and those of you that haven't gone but you're about to go, uh, you, you, you're rejoicing with me if you have gone and you're going to learn this great truth when you go, that when Jesus sends you, he gives you all of the authority and all of the ability and all of the courage and all of the words, everything it is that you need to go in His name to fulfill the mission, Jesus gives you all of that as you go. We go not as peasants, we, we go as ambassadors of the King. John Kerry goes and he speaks as the ambassador on behalf of Obama. And when he speaks, he speaks with all of the authority of the United States behind him because he goes in the name of Barack Obama. We go to the nations, we go in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we go with all of His authority. And so Jesus is saying to Paul, as you go, you're going to preach a message, and here is what the message is going to do. It's going to do... One thing, really, but here's three descriptions of the one thing that you're going to do. You're going to preach the gospel, and when you do, it's going to open their eyes. This is a miracle, you understand. Dead people, dead men walking, spiritually dead. They cannot believe until the gospel opens their eyes and by grace, they are given the ability to repent and believe. The gospel, we carry it. God does it, but we carry the message. And God opens their hearts. He opens their eyes. The second thing that happens is that they are turned from darkness to light. That's what happened to Saul on the road. He's going on a mission to Damascus 
in an instant. The grace of God falls upon him. The gospel changes him. He's taken from darkness to light. And then the third thing is that there will be deliverance from the power or the kingdom of Satan to the power or the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel does. That's what it did for me 36, 7, 8 years ago when I was dragged off of a surfing beach in South Texas and set on a new path like the Apostle Paul was and given this message now to take it to nations. Not only did it do it for me and for many of you, the gospel continues today to have this power. Do you believe that? We're carrying dynamite, people. We're going to the nations with a message that can literally raise the dead. And people are brought from the power of Satan to the power of God. And one of the the ways that I like to describe the condition of unreached peoples around the world is that they are in a headlock of Satan. Spiritually speaking, they are in this stranglehold of the enemy who has had them in his bondage, in his control, in some cases for many thousands of years. And so, it's an incredible task that the Lord is inviting us to be a part of, right? And I've used the the word a, a few times last night and this morning, the word privilege, And it's the word really that I want to stress again this morning. There's a lot of other good words. You know, I could preach about responsibility. I could go to Matthew 28, you know, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. It's a command. It's a responsibility. It's a mandate. It is. But the emphasis that I want to give this morning is that more than all of that, it is a privilege. This is something that primarily... We don't have to do it. Well, in a, in a way we do. It is a command. But get, get past the have to and, and, and grab hold of the get to. We don't have to do this. We get to do this. You see, it's a privilege that we live in a country where we have access to His name. More than a third of the world does not have access to His name. And we have free access to the Word of God. And many of us have, have, as the kids sang the song, I believe, I believe, we believe in Jesus. It's a privilege that we are able to believe in Jesus. And furthermore, it is a privilege that He gives to us that we can carry this message to the nations. It's not a privilege that was given to angels. If he had given it to angels, the job probably could be done a lot quicker and a lot easier. But he didn't do that. He gave it to these clay pots, humanity. He gave it to us and he says, you, you go in my name and carry this message. What a privilege. What a privilege. We get to go. And as we go into all of the world, we get to go into these territories that are under the control of the enemy, Muslim places, Hindus, Buddhists, tribals, Chinese, Russians, Indians, East Africans, 
people, man, by the billions that have no access to His name. And as we go, we do not go in strength. We do not go as Marines who muscle our way in and with just brute force, like the terrorists do, who try to just overtake people and countries and lands. We don't do that. We're not terrorists. We don't blow up marathons. We don't tape with duct tape pipe bombs onto little children and run them into crowded malls. We don't burn the Koran. We don't do all of these kinds of things because people are not our enemies. The Muslims, you understand, they are not our enemies. They may not be your friends, but they're not your enemies. They are people whom God has many people among, and we get to go and tell them, and many are going to be drawn out of them. You see the privilege in it. We're not after geographical conquest, and we don't go killing and with, with uh, violence. We go in humility and with dying. This is how Jesus came, you remember. He could have come as the king who just ran out all of the Romans and overtook them with brute force, but he didn't do it that way. He came instead with humility and in love and in weakness, and he died. Oh yeah, there's power, there's authority, but it's displayed after he has laid his life out Then the power of God comes upon him as he comes out of the grave. He goes to heaven. He is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And yes, he's the king. But the way that he brought salvation to the world was through weakness and through death. And the way that the gospel continues to go to the unreached peoples is also in that way. It goes through weakness, through hardship, through suffering, persecution, and sometimes through martyrdom. Just real quick, just uh, so that you know, those of you that were here uh, earlier today or last night, you, you heard uh, me talk a little bit about the condition of the world. I, I, I just want to briefly say something about it. As we make our way to Matthew chapter 9, go ahead and start turning there. We're going to get there in just a moment. But you need to know that the world today, the state of the world, is hugely, hugely unreached. A little more than 7 billion people on the planet, something like 3 billion of them are considered to to be peoples and languages and cultures who have no access at all to the gospel. That means, unreached, get this, unreached means that this These three billion people, largely, they are born, they live all of their lives, and they die in many, many cases without ever hearing the name of Jesus. 
You ever heard uh, Wycliffe Bible translators when they come through and they, you know, sometimes you want to hear what the, the language sounds like of the, the languages that they're learning and translating the scriptures into and, and they'll start speaking these languages and it'll just be, bah, 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 bah. you don't understand a word and all of a sudden you'll hear Jesus. Bah, 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 bah. Why is that? Because in so many of these languages, there is not even a concept of Jesus. There's not even the name of Jesus. And so when translators come to it, often they'll just put in the word Jesus. We, it's hard for us to fathom. Because we live in such a Bible-saturated culture that has had 200 years plus of Christian history behind it. That most of the world is not like that. That there is such a dearth of, of gospel witness. I mean, places where there are no Bibles, no Christians, no churches, no missionaries, zero witness for the gospel at all. And these are the places that we want to target. And how many of you know we need lots of missionaries? We need lots of missionaries, uh, the right kind of missionaries, to target these unreached places and to go and reach them for Christ. How are we going to get these missionaries? Where are we going to get them? Especially for the hostile, dangerous places. Where are we going to get them? And that brings us to our text. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, down to verse 1 of chapter 10. One or two of you can flip over to Luke 10 and hold that. We'll get to that at the end, just briefly. Um, but primarily Matthew 9, 35 and going down here. Let me read a few verses. Jesus is with His disciples. He goes through all of the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues of the people, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And Jesus sees the crowds, and when he sees the great multitude of people, it says that he has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless. He describes them as sheep without a shepherd. So he sees the people, they're in need, like sheep without a shepherd, and then he turns to his disciples who are following him, and he says to them, he says, the harvest, this multitude of people out here, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's the problem. Huge harvest, very few workers. That's the problem. But here's the answer. Where do we get missionaries? Jesus tells us, verse 38, Ask, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. Send forth laborers. And here's the reason I want to read verse 1 of chapter 10. He called His twelve disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So this passage that I just read for you is not a difficult one to understand. It doesn't take a lot of uh, expositing to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. I think if there is a problem with the text, 
The problem is that it's too simple. That it's just too black and white. We see that uh, disciples are required to do something in this text, and we just need to do what he said. That's the hard part of the text, not understanding it. And so let's just very quickly look at three points coming out of this passage and hopefully we'll be encouraged by what Jesus says to us to do. And as you embark on, on greater exploits for the gospel as a local church, perhaps this will be of some encouragement to you as well. There are three things that I want us to see directly out of the text. Number one, aren't you glad about this? There is already a Lord of the harvest. And it's not you. Any praise be to God's? Hallelujahs? Aren't you glad that this work of mission in the world, when we're talking about trying to reach Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and the impossible nature of the task, this harvest of the multitudes, aren't you glad that all of that is in the hands of a Lord of the harvest, who is big enough and smart enough and wise enough and powerful enough to pull it off? Oh, praise be to God. Missionaries, you're not the Lord of the harvest. Don't act like you are. There's already a Lord of the harvest. It's Jesus. And Jesus is God. And God gets what He wants. And what He wants is a full harvest of His lost sheep out of all of the people's. Don't get the picture in your head that Jesus is wringing His hands wondering, how am I ever going to get this job done? That's not our Lord of the harvest. He's not wringing His hands. He knows exactly how He's going to get it done, and He's going to get it done exactly as He wants. Everyone that He wants to go, they will go. Everyone that he wants to stay back here and become a financial martyr to send them, they will stay. And everyone that he wants to get involved in the mission through their intercessory prayers, they are going to be compelled to do that. Because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and he's going to get his job done in the way that he wants it done. Isn't that great? Isn't it great to be a part of a mission that cannot fail? We cannot fail. We may be killed, but we cannot fail. And this, this task, uh, this, this glorious thing of the message of Christ going to the nations, it will not be stopped. There's a Lord of the harvest. It's Jesus. Rejoice about that. But number two in the text, we see that there are workers in the harvest. There's a Lord of the harvest. That's not you. You're not concerned with being the, the one who has authority over the field. Leave that to Jesus. But you are a worker in the field. There are workers in the harvest. Aren't you glad that is you? I mean, this speaks again to the privilege that we have can I even, it's hard to even say this, that we are co-workers with God? Does that just send chills up and down your spine? 
That we can be co-workers intimately with God and what He's doing in the world? Where's the hardship of that? Where's the raw responsibility of that? I mean, do, do we, are we really going to say, oh, you know, Jesus had gone to all the world, so i got to go. Where's the sense of privilege in this? We get to be workers in the harvest. We, we, we should be saying, thank you, Lord. Like this co-worker of mine, when, when he prays so often, he'll, he'll say, thank you, Lord, for giving us a little piece of the action. You know, that's what it is. It's his job. He's doing it. He's going to gloriously do it. With you or without you, he's going to do it. But he's given us the opportunity and the privilege to work with him. We, get to, we have a little piece of the action. It's a privilege that we even get to touch what He's doing in the world. But He he, he lets us do this. So there's workers in the harvest. But number three, and this is going to go straight to the heart of the workers, because that's us. This is what, what we have responsibility for and privilege for. The workers in the harvest in the text are told to do two things. And so before I even tell you what they are, can't we just resolve to say, whatever, the kids were singing this song, I've never heard this song before, but whatever it is that Jesus says, I'm going to do. What's that song? What a beautiful song. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know, the workers are to do two things. Can't we resolve that we're just going to do these things? We're going to be obedient workers, obedient to the Lord of the harvest? Well, number one, Nobody yelled out, Amen, so I'm just going to move on, assuming that we're going to be obedient uh, workers in the harvest. We're, We're told by the Lord of the harvest to do two things. Number one, we are told to ask Him for laborers. And that word where he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that, the, that he would send out workers. Send out workers. That's the Greek word ekbalo. It's a spiritually forceful, violent word. It means thrust out. It's, it's actually used in, in another place. Jesus uses ekbalo when, when he says, if your eye offends you, Pluck it out. Ekbalo it. Get rid of it. Expel it. Rip it out. It's the same kind of idea. That's the violent nature of the meaning of the word. And so when we're praying to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, you know, it's an aggressive prayer. But I love this because in the, the reason that I read verse 1 of chapter 10 is because that same word is used again. Ekbalo, to send forth laborers, but also to drive out demons. The disciples were given authority to ekbalo demons, to forcibly expel them. Isn't this interesting? In the span of two verses, we have ekbalo used twice in two completely different ways, but sort of making the same point. That on the authority of Jesus Christ, When Jesus speaks to a demon, and He says, go, what does the demon do? Every time, what does He do? He goes. He vacates. 
And in the same way, that authority of Jesus, when He whispers into the ears of some of you that I'm praying that He's doing even this moment as I speak, and He whispers into your ear, go. And maybe somebody's hearing East Africa. Or maybe you're hearing Indonesia, or Mexico, or New Guinea, or China. Or maybe there's no specific location. You're just hearing Him say, go! I've got news for you. If He's saying that to you, you're going to go. You're going to go. This is the biblical way, though, for guys like me, missionaries, mission leaders to come to churches and to raise up laborers. I'm not coming here showing you pictures of crying babies. I'm coming and I'm telling you, I'm praying for many of you that He's going to shake you up. He's going to shake your world up. He's going to, he's going to, to compel some of you to rearrange all of your lives around the Great Commission. But I don't have to do it by trying to argue you into it or talk you into it. I've already done the work, brothers. I've already gone over your heads. I've already done the text before I got here. I've already prayed to the Lord of the harvest, Lord, would you move among this great church and would you compel many to go? And I just, I'm crazy enough to believe that He's doing it. Lord, would you raise up laborers for the harvest? Would you forcibly expel them? Send them. And when we pray this way and we live this way, some amazing, interesting, strange things begins to happen. I come to churches like this and I preach like this and then I go back home and then before long I begin to get emails and I'll get a letter, I'll get a phone call here and there. You know, just a few weeks ago, I got a call from a pastor and said, you know, we've got a real problem here. We've got like 27 people that have just been, comp- you know, what are we going to do with the, you know, strange things begin to happen when you pray to the Lord of the harvest. One of the ways we say it in our ministry is that we do the praying and Jesus does the flinging and the harvest is brought in. That's how it happens. But it gets very interesting here. There's a second part of the command, and this is where I wanted to get you, those few of you who turn to Luke chapter 10. Matthew 9 and Luke 10 are almost exactly, they are exactly the same word for word, uh, the, the verses word for word the same, verbatim. The difference is in Matthew 9, Jesus is talking to the twelve. In Luke 10, He's talking to the 70, but He says the same thing. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord of the harvest would send forth ekbalo laborers. The difference though, and this gets us to the second thing that disciples of Jesus must do. One, we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest. What's the second thing? We find it in Luke 10, 3. The very first word, one word, yell it out to me somebody. Go! You don't get that in Matthew 9. He adds it in, in Luke 10. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth laborers into the harvest. Go! It's like 
really the sense of it, if you read some of the commentators, it, it seems like what Jesus is saying is that you are to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth labors and then move your feet. Follow your prayer. Try to become an answer to your own prayer for laborers. Pray the prayer, then try to go. Now, I've already established, I think, some of you agreed with me, you've already verbally said it, so I've got you on record, uh, as saying that going in His name is a privilege. Is it not? It is a privilege. Then why aren't you storming this platform to sign up for East Africa and Indonesia and for the Middle East? You know, why, why? I should be pinned against the wall back here with you guys rushing me saying, How do I? But nobody's coming. Why? You tell me. The answer is in the next phrase. In Luke 10, 3, after the word go. What does it say? A phrase. I'm just going to send you like what? Like lambs among wolves. That's why you're not rushing the podium. Because people don't normally line up for a bloodbath. And Jesus is a gracious Lord of the harvest. He, t- he tells us in advance what it's going to be. He doesn't sugarcoat it and then you find out later, oh, the cross, carrying a cross means death. No, He spells it out for you at the beginning. You don't find out later that there's small print, right? Don't you love that about Jesus? He's just open and honest. And it's like he turns to his disciples and he says, As the Father has sent me, how did, Jesus, how did the Father send him? As a lamb to the wolves. So send I you. How? As lambs to the wolves. So how do we get, how does this work? I pray to the Lord of the harvest, I want him to send out laborers, but how am I going to convince them to go with joy? when they're going to go out with almost certain death. How am I going to convince you? Well, I can't. This is where the Lord of the harvest Himself comes in. As we pray, God is very, very gracious. And He doesn't treat us normally like Marines either. He doesn't just manhandle us normally and make us do something we don't want to do. What I have found is that Jesus is very gracious to work by His grace and to change our hearts. And as we pray this prayer for laborers, the way that Jesus works among you that He wants to send is that He begins to change your hearts. Like Jesus in the text, it says that He saw the people and He had compassion on them. And one of the things that's going to happen to to, to those of you that are beginning to hear Jesus say go, is that you're going to have a compassion for people, for lost people. And your desires are going to begin to change. And you're going to find that Jesus begins to make Himself so big and so great, and He becomes such a treasure to you 
that in comparison with that, all of your fears about the wolves kind of disintegrates and becomes nothing. The greater he gets, the, the less that the fears become. And all of a sudden you find fears being replaced with courage. And you begin to have this passion for His name and gospel that you've never had before. So much so that now nothing matters anymore. And you do strange things. Like some of the kids that are in our school right now. Some of, them, some of these guys were making six-figure incomes in the tech world. And through these Ekbalo prayers, all of a sudden the God is changing them and they're saying, you know, this just doesn't satisfy anymore. The two-story house and the nice cars and all of the rest of it, it's, it's becoming, it's, it's dissatisfying to me. You know, I've got a compassion for the lost and they do strange things like give up high-paying jobs and sell beautiful homes and give up careers and they move to South Texas with their young families. And they begin to go through our training. They sign burial forms. And we prepare them to go into some of the most dangerous places in the world. And they say, I'm going to take my family, my young children, and we're going to go into the Middle East. And we're going to do it with joy. You see how gracious God is? Let me end with this story. I've completely lost track of time. But I think that this story will, will be encouraging to you. If you have never heard of the Moravians, I know the Patriots are playing this afternoon, but sometime during the day, Google the Moravians. Read about these guys. And one of the things you're going to see is the name Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. Very strange name. Very strange guy. Oh, really, a, a weird person. Uh, he, he inherited the equivalent of a million or more dollars from his father. This is back in the 1700s. So he's this wealthy plantation owner. And he allows these peasant Moravians. More, more, they're called Moravians because it's the country of Moravia near Germany. He allows them to come onto his plantation. These are believers, and he is a believer. And all of a sudden, they kind of evolve into a church. And the, the number of them probably is about as many people as are in this one aisle here. It was not a huge number of people, probably not more than 100 people that were in this community. And this period of spiritual renewal began to just take hold of this community, and the history books will tell us, you Google this, you'll see it, on August 13th, 1727. I love that. I love dates, because it shows me that this is not a mythology, that this happened on a day and time and hour. A powerful presence of the Lord came upon this small group during a communion service. And you guys are about to have communion. And I'm just saying, Lord, would you do a similar thing? What's today? October what? You know, maybe in a hundred years, we're going to be looking, somebody will be looking back on this date. Why not? Why not? Why can't, the, why can't the Holy Spirit fall on us in the same kind of way? 
Well, here's what happened to them. August 13, 1727, powerful presence of the Lord came upon them during a communion service. It sparked a revival with two primary characteristics. Number one was, was just prayer for their own community that they would grow and mature and be the kind of disciples that they should be. But then coupled with that was a passion. Nobody even seems to really know how they got this. But a passion for unreached peoples just began to consume the, the community. And one of the women, I think it was, said, why don't we, practical women, right? Why don't we get 24 men and 24 women and we're going to organize them, schedule them around the clock so that there will be ongoing prayer 24 hours a day. Do you know how long this prayer meeting lasted? How long would it need to last before we in this church would say, wow, that's amazing? I said that somewhere and somebody said, yeah, well, like two hours, 30 minutes. But no, this prayer meeting, not one year, not one decade, not 50 years, uninterrupted prayer for more than 100 these poor peasants in Moravia. And it says that during the first 15 years of this prayer revival, that churches were established. Meaning that people from this little community, where they got the money, somehow God got them where He wanted them in in the harvest. And in the first 15 years, churches were established throughout the Virgin Islands, Greenland, Turkey, the Gold Coast of Africa, South Africa, and among the Indians and Eskimos right here in North America. Believers on the outside of the Moravians looked at them and saw what God was doing, and they said about the Moravians, they said, the Moravians, they just took the Great Commission personally. Personally. And they were vigorous in their pursuit of the nations. Very quickly, here's how the first two Moravian missionaries were sent. Five years into the prayer meeting, the 100-year prayer meeting, the Lord began to burden these two guys, not pastors. These were just, you know, one of them was a potter and David Nietzscheman was a carpenter. And these two guys began to get a burden of concern for the slaves in St. Thomas out in the Virgin Islands. And they decided that the best way to reach the slaves in St. Thomas would be, don't you think this is a good idea, a good strategy? Let's sell ourselves into slavery so we can be on the inside. Anybody want to embrace that strategy? But this is what the compelling of the Holy Spirit did with these guys. And they did it. October 8, 1732, they're taking off. The ship is disappearing into the harbor. Their friends and family back on the shore can't see them because they're down in the belly of this ship. But they can hear them. You know what they're yelling? These two guys are yelling back to their family as the ship is disappearing across the the horizon. They're yelling back, May the Lamb... May the Lamb that was slain, may He receive the the reward of His suffering. Over and over they were shouting that. Finally the ship disappeared and these guys were never heard from again. But they made an impact. 
on the island of St. Thomas. And one of the mottos for the Moravian missionaries for more than a hundred years became this phrase, May the Lamb that was slain, may He receive the reward of His suffering. And the legacy of the Moravians, and this is not true today, you know, the Spirit has departed largely from the Moravian movement, but for this hundred and hundred plus years, it was said about the Moravians that their passion for souls was only surpassed by their passion for the Lamb of God. And the reason I wanted you to Google them is because when you do, you're going to read stories about these guys and these women, these wives and these mothers, going in just with absolute fearlessness, going into places where they suffered just horrific, grisly martyrdoms all over the world. But here's the interesting thing as, as we, we close. These missionaries from this community, as they went out around the world, as they were slaughtered, as lambs among wolves are, and the word got back to the community about the slaughter of their friends, the community would come together and they would have what they called martyr replacement services. You understand what that is? Because the Moravians didn't only tithe their money to mission, they tithed their people. And when some of those people that made up the tithe of missionaries were slaughtered, and the word came back that they were slaughtered, the Moravian community would come together, and you know how they would do it? They would throw dice to figure out who's going to be the next ones to go. How do you want to be a part of that meeting? But the interesting thing is, the people were not shying away from the meeting. They weren't saying, oh no, maybe it's going to fall our way and we have to go. No, it wasn't that. Read the stories. And these husbands and wives and children are going to the meeting and some of the children are saying, hey daddy, maybe this time the dice is going to come our way and we'll get to go. That was the attitude of these guys. Isn't that amazing? Their passion for souls was only surpassed by their passion for the Lamb of God. And this is so convicting for me. I mean, it's like cold water in my face. Because if what we say and what we sing and what we read in Scripture about Jesus is, is right and real and true, I'm, I'm talking to me now. I'm preaching in a mirror here. I'm saying, if all of that is true, shouldn't there be something more in my life that reflects something of this kind of sacrifice with joy in order to get Jesus' name advanced? Shouldn't there be? I mean, if the gospel is the most important and the most priceless thing in the universe, shouldn't we be willing to Sell, the, sell everything to buy the field kind of a thing. Tim Keller, and I've quoted this, I think, in every message that I've had with you guys, so forgive me, but it's just it impacts me much these days. Tim Keller, one sentence, he said, Jesus didn't tithe His blood. Meaning, He didn't just pour out a little bit of His life and blood 
as a sacrifice. He poured it all out. And what that means now is that as we follow Him, we also must give it all. Jesus didn't walk the hard road so we could come along behind and walk the easy road. No, we walk the same road. The easy road's coming. Heaven's coming. But here, we're, we're, we're following our King. We're following the Lamb as lambs. And we're not able as disciples to just measure out our lives and say, well, I'll give Him this much, I'll give Him this much, but here's the line, no more past this line. We can't do that as disciples. Jesus didn't tithe His blood and you can't tithe your life. Our bodies are bought with a price. Scripture says, our bodies belong to Him. And if He wants to take this body of David Sitton, put His gospel in this body, and carry it off to some Muslim place somewhere, and I'm buried like a seed, and I die in that place for the advance of His name and for a harvest, He has every right to do that. He's the Lord of the harvest. I'm a worker in the harvest. And if He does that, we should be saying with joy, Jesus is worth it. You've got that on your t-shirts. Is Jesus really worth it? Worth what? Everything. Is He? If He is, we're going to live our lives differently. Let me close with this verse. It's been a privilege. This is my last shot at you guys. And Thank you guys for inviting me, letting me be a part of this, this great conference with this great theme. Uh, you, you guys are awesome. And I, I believe that God's going to use this church in a mighty, mighty way in the days ahead. The history of this church. Is the fellow here that his dad is 102 years old? Is he, in the, he was in the first service, one of the founders of the church. I mean, what a blessing. This, this church has a history going back to the 40s. And I want to say to you guys as a final word, don't, don't, don't just look back and, and glory about what he did in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. I want you to look forward now and say, well, how can God use us for a, a new and fresh and greater advance of the gospel in the 2010s and 20s and 30s? And here's the last verse, and I'll sit. Jesus said, this is a promise, by the way. This is not something that Jesus hopes He's going to be able to accomplish. This, this will happen. It's a promise. Hear the surety and the certainty of these words. And this gospel of the kingdom, it will be preached in all of the world as a testimony to all nations. Nations. Greek word ethne, people groups. This gospel will go to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Like my mentor used to say, let's go for the globe. Let's go for all of it. Let's go get some of them for Jesus.